0: We have to scale. In the United States, there's a company called Norton LifeLock and they help with cybersecurity and protecting our identity and all that. Well, Avast is the same company, but in in the in Europe. So they're merging. So they're getting ready to merge the two companies together and they're gonna have a base of 500 million individuals and families that they serve. Well, they just confirmed our business model because they bought the pioneer of self-sovereign identity but they're only going to be serving 500 million. So there's still another 7 billion people out there that need help. My name's Gordon Jones. I'm co-founder and CEO of Validity Corporation, creators of the Thrivacy Wallet.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laporte, and today how Dr. Gordon Jones took an idea and his experience and created the digital password for identity and security. All this and more on Code Story. Dr. Gordon Jones just turned 60 years old but you wouldn't know it from his energetic, vibrant tone. He has his doctorate in health administration, but he got into health technology in 1997. He lives in South Carolina with his wife and five adopted children. Dr. Jones and his wife adopted their first child one year after they were married, as they felt led by God to pursue this path. Their main family activity is watching movies together, but they love to throw the frisbee, travel, and ultimately be together doing new things. While teaching at the university, Dr. Jones came across a student's idea to provide security around her identity. In addition to that, he had recently gone through a lengthy background check process, which required the re-verification of several bits of information. He decided to solve both of these problems by creating a solution using the blockchain. This is the creation story of Thrivacy.
0: So I teach blockchain, data privacy, and self-sovereign identity in the uh, college. In all of my coursework and everything I do, I teach entrepreneurship. At the beginning of every class, I have my students think about a problem that they either are having them personally or something in their business that they're getting trained to go into that they would want to solve while they're learning about these tools. At the end of the uh, semester, they have to submit a one page executive summary and then a PowerPoint that, and then they have to give a three to five minute pitch on their idea. One of my students in 2020, Erica Barnett, her thought was she wanted to help secure student identity. So like they lost their IDs, where there's a school ID or their driver's license or whatever, their wallet, their purse, whatever, they lost that and their identity was stolen. How can we help secure their identity? And then on the other one is security and safety. So when she goes down to the bars and they're carting her to buy an adult beverage, when she does that, she's handing over her whole driver's license with her name, her home address. And so now if there's a particular person who is interested in stalking her, then now he's got her name and home address. So that was her problem that she wanted to solve leveraging the technology we were I was teaching about And then my problem that I had already had was I had just got onboarded at the university as an adjunct professor, and I haven't gone through a third party background check since 1997, because I've been working for myself. So when you go to an employer, apply for a job, before they hire you, they have to do this third party. They have to hire a third party company to verify your education, your work history, and even your criminal history. And that was, uh, I mean, that process, I just realized how stupid it is. I was wondering why isn't my LinkedIn profile, all my attributes that I've already listed on my LinkedIn profile except for my criminal history, why isn't that information already verified and then turned into an immutable record in some form or fashion? So that an employer can just go to my LinkedIn and do what they need to do to verify the information but it's already there, verified. It's an immutable record. So I didn't go in and change it after it was verified so they could trust that information and then go ahead and hire me on the spot instead of having to hire some third party to spend three days to three weeks to vet out who I am. So we ultimately ended up meshing those two ideas together because we realized that your identity is not just your name, your home address, your birth date, your blonde hair, your blue eyes, whatever. It's, I went to this school, got this college degree, got this master's, got certified in this professional association. I have this this work history. Um, Even the fact that I have, uh, I can drive in the state of South Carolina and I own a, a car. So all those are attributes that make up really who I am. And then my capabilities to do things like work or qualify to run run in the Hawaiian Ironman or whatever it is. There's the credentials that you're required to get through to do things. Basically, what we wanted to do was we wanted to help people protect their data privacy in order for them to have the freedom to be able to do what they want, not not only in the digital world, but also in the physical world, because you can use your wallet in the physical world. So we came out with the name Thrivacy, where we were combining, hey, thrive in the world through protecting your privacy.
1: Tell me about the MVP, so that minimum viable product, that first product you built, how long did it take to build, and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life?
0: So we're, we're still building it. <laughs> But in the early days, we only had a little bit of money. So we had to figure out, okay, who are we going to find to help build this thing? Because neither Erica nor I are programmers. So one of the first people we brought in was a guy by the name of Seth McGaw. And he's not a programmer either, but he's really deep into blockchain like I am. And we brought him as a co-founder and he's our product manager guy. We faltered in the beginning, so we identified some low-cost tech developers in the local community and they ultimately did not deliver. We had to fire them. And then we did kind of almost the same thing again by accident. It's not really they didn't deliver, it's just that we didn't need exactly what their capabilities were. But so finally in July of last year, we met a company that's focused on developing digital wallets within what we call self-sovereign identity. So they've been working with us since uh, really August. It's a platform play where we're verifying credentials and we're leveraging an open source blockchain called Hyperledger uh, in order to verify the information that we verify from the issuers. We actually had our soft launch and demonstrated five use cases on December 1st. Then we've been kind of tweaking it a little bit more. Our first pilot project is with uh, the the University of South Carolina. So what we're doing for them is we're going to be converting those college degrees into these verifiable credentials. We're gonna let them download a Thrivacy wallet for free and then we're gonna provide them with their college degree in this digital format of verifiable credentials so that they now have the first USC college degree ever in the format of a verifiable credential that they can use to go apply for a job with an immutable record. So, that now that company doesn't have to then go hire a third party company to verify that they graduated from the University of South Carolina. We also are a, a uh, member of the Blackbaud Social Good Startup Accelerator. Blackbaud is a company here in South Carolina, but they're the world's largest SaaS for nonprofit applications. So, they serve Uh, tens of thousands of companies around the world, organizations, nonprofits, that serve millions and millions of people around the world. And so we're designing the identity wallet to ultimately serve that population. So you can imagine those people around the world, both in the developing world and in the developed world, who need to protect their identity or even maybe even establish their identity for the first time. There's about one billion people in the world who have no real identity they have no bank account they have no property that they own so they can't really even say who they are and when the authority is ever asking
1: with those decisions that you made on on who to pilot with and what the first product looked looked like right and how you were going to go about making that first product right with any mvp you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs right Tell me about some of those you worked through with you and your team and your co-founders and how you coped with those decisions.
0: So, first we had this, we had this grand vision of what it is we want to accomplish. As we were doing our research, or not just our customer discovery of what the customers want, but what's what's the rest, what are all the other people doing in digital identity? And then really one of the things we found out was the identity management as an industry is solely focused on the enterprise. They're not focused on the individual. So the first thing we did is we found this unserved niche. It's not really a niche because it's 7 billion people, but but this focus where it's not about the enterprise and, and scaling to meet the needs of this enterprise entity. It's what does the individual need in order to protect their identity and their digital assets as an individual without building this big honeypot of millions of accounts that a hacker's gonna wanna go after. And so that was the first thing we we set in stone that even though we have B2B revenue models, the ultimate customer is the individual. And so even if we are working on it with an employer to help verify their background and all that information, or we're uh, working with a university to convert all these college grad degrees into verifiable credentials. All those people are actually our primary customer. And so we now wanna provide the ultimate customer experience that they've never had before in a digital wallet system and they wanna use for the rest of their life. I mean, it's like going and buying a Gucci wallet. So you go spend 1500 bucks on a gucci wallet that you're going to have in your in your pocket and it's so great i mean the it's beautiful people comment on it when you're using it it feels good for you and it, the utility of it is great and you just open it and use it so we want to build that same experience ultimately in our wallet system so that was the focus from the beginning but we realized as we were, you know we got a whole figma of what our beautiful user experience is going to be, but it's going to take a lot of money to create that. So we had to go all the way back to the beginning and say, okay, well, what do we need to build first? And that's the back end. So we got to build the functionality of all this stuff first and then layer in the experience on top of that. So right now we're, we've got the core functionality and we've got a user interface. (laughs) So it's not a customer experience really at all. Um, but it'll allow us to do the our pilots basically beta testing with some live people to get feedback from them to start adapting the back end and then evolve our our um, user experience over time.
1: Well, then I want to ask kind of how how you're building your roadmap because you're 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 sort of talking about that as okay we're going to do this first and then we're going to move to this section. How are you making those decisions and? Um, you know, how, how are you deciding, you know, what's the next most important thing to build?
0: So we got accepted to the startup wind accelerator, which is a San Francisco based accelerator, but they partner with universities around the country to help professors and students bring their ideas to market. And so we got, uh, we were actually in a, uh, the, one of the first cohorts for last year in 2021 and through there, we met a lady by the name of Nicole Spircali. She was a mentor in the accelerator. And so after the program, we actually invited her to be our, one, our advi- one of our advisors. And she jumped on board with us. Well, she's experienced in what's called the entrepreneur operating system, which is EO- EOS. Most people probably just know it by EOS. But it's a way to operate your company, um, mostly small business, uh, doesn't have to be tech oriented, but um, it's not necessarily oriented towards a pure startup at the beginning, but we know that we're going to be scaling this operation quickly uh, because we have to. So what we wanted to do is really build a good, strong foundation in our operations, so with Nicole's help, we adopted the operating, uh, the entrepreneur operating system EOS, into how we communicate, and it helped. I mean, it's it's um, it's a guide to um, everything from uh, your C suite meetings, your board meetings. Uh, you know, how do you structure your financial? transactions and things like that in regards to communicating that information back to the team. Uh, So it's a framework of which we can really operate more efficiently. And then through that, you know, we're able to, um, so we have meetings on Mondays and Fridays. And in that there's a structure of, of the process that we go through to bring up problems, um, discuss how we're going to solve these problems, assign tasks to help accomplish the solution and then track all that information while we're going through the process and then ultimately if we have to delegate to other team members that come on board then we can do that through this framework so so we built so the framework is really kind of the foundation um, and then through that uh, you know we all had to learn the operating system while we were also building the company <laughs> so. So we had a lot of struggles, of course, um, through that process. And, and and I told you, you know, we had a couple of falters there at the beginning. It wasn't because we didn't have the foundation and the operating, it was primarily more of our our timing as opposed to those who we were meeting who we believed could help us. Um, so every startup goes through that process. But, um, so we, we have, regular meetings we've got our process of which we engage with outside and vendors um you know how do we structure those scopes of work and the contracts and all that kind of stuff now we are much much better now at doing that than we were 12 months ago (laughs) so as a team so uh so that's uh, so that's that's uh, you know we've gone through three different outsourced companies and we believe we found the one that we like and they're doing a good job and um, so but now we got to deal with that you know how do you deal with we don't have an internal team yet because we haven't had the money to be able to hire these really expensive guys and girls um, so it's all outsourced right so how do we keep them on task and all that kind of stuff so that's 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 the biggest part that's difficult is just internal and external communication
1: tell me how how you're going about building your team uh, and maybe it's it's part of what you look for in that you know third party who's helping you engineer the product but also who, you know what you look for in those people that you're bringing in outside of engineering that indicate that they're the winning horses to join
0: you know right at the beginning it's okay yes we have these attributes of the people that we need to accomplish our goal, but more importantly, it's really who they are and what do they believe, and how does that relate to what our vision is for helping people protect them themselves? And so we have a process that we, uh, the interview process that we take them through, where they're meeting us, and a lot, ha- it's a heavy on the cultural mix discussion. Um, as opposed to just, okay, I can code in Python. Yeah. Um, And now we didn't necessarily do that with the outsourced vendors, um, but we chose a company on the developer side that came out of historic with the same self sovereign identity. So they've been working on decentralized identity and self sovereign identity and blockchain tech for five years. So they're, we're of the same mindset at that level. And then they have the experience of already working on within this environment of self-sovereign identity, leveraging Hyperledger and, and all that. Um, so that's, that's how we chose them. Um, and, and we're not really responsible for their, their team members, though we interact with them. I, I guess at the end of the day, we could ask them to remove somebody from the team, but we haven't had to do that because everybody's great.
1: So let's talk about scalability. So it's, it's early on in the process, right? You're building an MVP. You're not so worried about scaling it, but, but how are you going to address scalability in the future? Um, and are you going to kind of fight it as you grow?
0: So we are building to scalability. So, cause we have to, since we're a consumer, a B two C model, well, we have a three year, a five year, and a 10 year goal. Um, we believe our attainable is a million members over three years our 10-year goal is 500 million so we've got to scale from zero to one million over the next three years and then scale from one million to 500 million over the next seven years after that (laughs) we have to build for scale today and really the way that blockchain is structured today with that many members and those many Transactions, the blockchain as it's structured today would not be able to handle fi- a 500 million member ecosystem. So we know that we're going to have to be on the cutting edge of transactions, at least the transactions that are utilizing blockchain, because we have other technologies we can do around securing identity. So, staying on the forefront of the technology as it evolves, if we're not necessarily helping it evolve ourselves by bringing in our own IP or developing our own IP. But that's our vision. I mean, we have to scale. For example, a company called Avast, A V A S T, in the United States, there's a company called Norton Lifelock, and they help individuals and families with cybersecurity and protecting our identity and all that. Well, Avast is the same company, but in, in the in Europe. So they're merging. So they're getting ready to merge the two companies together, and they're going to have a base of 500 million individuals and families that they serve. Well, they just confirmed our business model because they bought the pioneer of self-sovereign identity, a company called Evernim in order to bring that technology to their 500 million members. But they're only going to be serving 500 million. So there's still another 7.1 billion people out there that need help. But we have to be able to scale and we know we're going to be venture bad because there's no way for us to scale fast enough without being able to bring in venture capital to make it happen. That's why we have to get the user, The uh, sorry I hate the word user, that is a bad connotation for people who are accessing the internet, but we have to make we have to make it to where it's easy for them to first get a grasp of what managing their own identity is, and how they can do it through this simple wallet, and then why they really need to do it. Uh, the the company that I use in my pitch in comparison is uh, in 2010, this company called Coinbase started up. They got accepted to Y Combinator in 2011, and their whole purpose was to educate and then create a as frictionless as possible on ramp for people to purchase cryptocurrency. And this is in 2011 when Bitcoin was a dollar 30 or whatever it was. So Coinbase was, was, was being built when nobody knew anything about cryptocurrency in order to ultimately bring on consumers to purchase cryptocurrency. And so they spent the last 10 years doing that. They are only serving 35 million people. So they have a market cap of almost 70 billion or $80 billion based on only serving 35 million people to help them buy crypto. In ten years, we believe we'll be at five hundred million, helping people with identity, which they use every day, all day long. So the the value of the future of managing, end of, helping people manage their own identity, is going to be huge.
1: As you step out on the balcony and you look across what you've built so far, what what are you most proud of?
0: Well, first of all, we got a cool team. So we got like mesh. So it was, it was Erica and I first, so I'm 60, she's 24, 25. She's female, young, I'm old dude. And then we brought in Seth, who's another young buck. And then Nicole came on. So our Nicole Spircali was our advisor, but she was like digging in. We have a requirement of uh, five hours a month for our advisors. Well, she was like spending way much more time on us. To where in July we finally invited her to be our COO, and then after that we actually made her a co-founder. So the four of us are the co-founders: two males, two females, two young people who are learning, and then two old people who can help teach them. <laughs> and uh, and so we're getting it done. Um, I mean we we convinced a, we convinced about thirty people to give us five hundred thousand bucks. So. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's anyway, we still got more to do on the fundraising side. But, uh, so that's probably, that's the most cool thing. But the the thing that I'm probably most proud of is that uh, is the mission that we're on because we're not, of course we want to make money, but our mission and vision is wrapped around helping people protect themselves. I mean, if this idea of this metaverse thing that's big deal now, you know, VCs throwing money left and right at this stuff and Mark Zuckerberg changed the name of his company to Meta and, and Dorsey changes the name of Square to Block and so they're getting into all this stuff, right? So if this metaverse, this idea of this metaverse happens. Our data is already being stolen every day or every second we go on the internet. Our, our identity is being stolen because they're making money off of what we do on the internet. When we go into this virtual environment and they can see our whole being and track and trace our whole being, they're, they're I mean, Mark Zuckerberg uh, Meta just filed a patent to be able to read the facial expressions of an avatar in the metaverse. Um, basically, they're doing it through the um, through the, the, the headset. It's technically how they're doing it. But at the end of the day, they're, they're gonna be able to register facial expressions based upon the activities we're doing in this environment and understand what makes us do things. And then they're going to present situations or products or or events in the metaverse that get exposed to us, that present those emotions and actions, and then we'll do them because that's how well they will know us. They already know us very well, but they're gonna know us so well. So what we, what our vision is, is, I, I call it this indieverse. So, if we're going to go in the metaverse where all this stuff is happening around the world um, in the universe virtually, we we need to have an indieverse where we're where we're protecting everything of who we are in a f- way where we can mask ourselves as we go into different environments, so that those guys can't track us as we're going through all this stuff because that's how they capture the data. And then they mesh it with all the other data points they have on us. And then they use that to then serve their customer who is primarily advertisers. Um, and they, so they're manipulating us and it's going to even be worse in the metaverse. So that that's, that's like the thing that I'm most proud of is that, okay, if we can pull it off, if we can make this happen, we are going to be protecting people's lives.
1: Well, let's flip the script a little bit, even in, and especially actually in the early days of of startups, right? You, You make mistakes left and right and you learn from them. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: Well, the biggest mistake was the person slash company we hired at first to help us build this stuff. I mean, this person on paper, I mean, he's got three patents in encryption and cryptography and... He believes in God and he he believes in this privacy realm. And I mean, we we even offered him to be our CTO and a co-founder. And he didn't want to do that because he wanted to run his own company, which is all fine, that's all fine. But we contracted with him because of, we believed that it was the right thing to do at the time. Both from a capability standpoint, a dollar amount that we had in the bank to be able to pay somebody, and and then what our mesh vision was so we hired this guy and then he ran off with our money (laughs) so so i write a i write a letter an email to our we call them our founding investors some of them are, are they're all friends and family but so i write a email to them updating them on everything that's happening every month and when we discovered that um, I, I I'm Trent we're transparent and everything so that was probably the most difficult email for me to write was saying that I screwed up by hiring this guy to build our stuff that you were investing in us to build that was gonna be in the book that we ultimately write. <laughs> So
1: well, let's push to you Gordon who influences the way that you work maybe a, a CEO or an architect or an entrepreneur a person really any person that you look up to and why
0: well so I just published a book called how to create yourself and in it is all of that (laughs) so it's it's seventy seven thousand words and it's on Amazon you can go to Amazon and search for how to create yourself I haven't done the audible uh, version yet Um, so in it it talks about uh, everything all the people that have influenced my life including my parents um now a lot of it is my wife i mean she's you, you think i'm hyper in A, man she's like while we were raising my five hundred thousand dollars in friends and family money money she raised 5.2 million dollars to build a new building for her she's got a preschool for medically fragile children called apparel academy and they have already outgrown their building so they need to raise five million dollars to build a new building she did that in six months and seven months and they're already halfway through building the building. So <laughs> so she she kicks my butt all over the place. Um, um but of course, you know, as you can see Mahami, um Jesus is uh, probably the number one influence on my life as much as I I can. Um but two people that I like to read. Uh, from and and, and gain some insight from Uh, Gary Ryan Blair so he wrote um, um, a book called Everything Counts it's basically about goals setting goals and all that Uh, he also has a uh, service video um, what do you call it a a program that you go through over 100 days so 5 to 6 minute video every morning for 100 days to help 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 get yourself set uh, for the year and attain your goals. And, and uh, so he forwarded my book. I appreciate everything he wrote about it. He's yeah, I, uh, we've been chatting about personal development for nine, 10 years now. Um, and then, uh, Tom Butler Bowden, he writes a series of books where he summarizes all the classics so he's got he's got a a series of books called the 50 best uh, self-help classics spiritual classics philosophy classics I mean he's got a whole uh, six or seven of these things to where you can go in and learn anything you need to from all of the gurus in history all concise in one place Um, so I recommend you get all those from a historical figure standpoint, Winston Churchill is my guy, man. I mean, <laughs> he helped save the world during World War II. And, and then right after he, he saved the world, they kicked him out of being uh, prime minister. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, he, he's, he's not only smart. He was not only smart. Uh, he was a writer. He wrote the history of the English-speaking people. I mean, so he writes. He wrote, wrote so much. And then he's a funny guy, real funny guy. And uh, so I appreciate Winston Churchill probably the most from a historical figure, besides Jesus.
1: (laughs) Well, if you could go back to the very beginning, perhaps when the idea was in in, in its inception form or when you got started, um, what would you do differently? Or is there anywhere you consider taking a different approach?
0: Every startup's different. Uh, I've done several some I've tried to do by myself. I realized that that's, you can't really do that. <laughs> and then, so this one has been great from the standpoint of being able to pull a team together to make it happen. I, I would say we, even though we are we adopted this EOS system from a process standpoint, um, I would probably have recruited I would probably have pursued an engineer earlier than we right now we've got we're actually looking for an engineer to to come on board full-time with us Uh, because I'm not a programmer myself I mean I have that mindset and all that I kind of understand it but I can't like for example I can't if if our outsourcers are behind schedule I can't go in and spend the next 24 hours smacking out code to get it done, right? So we need somebody like that. So I I think that we probably should have recruited somebody on the team early um, that came from the engineering side. The problem is, is we're in South Carolina. Uh, I'm trying to create a company that is a high-impact tech company that comes out of South Carolina and stays in South Carolina because I love South Carolina, and we need companies like that. Um, the venture money in South Carolina invests in real estate, so so there's a little bit of biopharma, a little bit of tech here and there, but primarily, you know, all of the people here understand real estate, and that's all they invest in. So we don't really have a whole, I mean, we've got pockets of, of tech, but nothing. There's no, there's no tech center with multiple unicorns who are putting money back into the community. So there's not any, uh, so we have a hard time doing that here. So I really am trying hard to do that. Or at least I was doing that in the beginning. And so I didn't want to just hire an Indian programmer who might be the best guy in the world at a good price to come on board with the team because I was South Carolina first. But now we kind of throwing that out the window. <laughs> so, uh, so we're opening it up and broadening. So we probably should have done that a little bit earlier.
1: Well, well, last question, Gordon. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give this person having gone down this road several times?
0: so first of all i let them do their pitch and then i'll do like kind of what you do in this interview is ask okay what's the process of how you got here and all that but at the end of it when we're getting ready to hop off the plane i tell them that no matter what your vision is of what you want to accomplish what it is today when you get there it's going to be something totally different (laughs) so you have to be open-minded certainly be Confirmed in your conviction that this is what needs to happen, but it might end up Happening in a different way that you envision it. Um, So you might still be serving the problem that you envision, but it'll probably be solved in a different way than you think it will be and So as you're going down this through this pathway, you have to be beholden to your vision and your conviction but be open-minded to the journey that it takes to get there. Um, because that's where all your faults and, and things are going to happen. And the, market's not, the market might not accept the way that you want to solve the problem. Yes, they may acknowledge the problem, but they might not like the way you want to solve it. So if you're not adapting along the way to customer discovery and, and, and their views on how they're taking it to your product, then you're not going to be you're not going to have a business at the end because there's not going to be any customers. We all need to have a uh, place that we want to be in the future, and we have to kind of map out how we're going to get there. But we also have to be flexible enough to go with the flow. God has a plan, and and uh, He's in ultimate control, but. We're the ones who react to all the things that happens.
1: That's solid advice. Well, Gordon, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Thrivacy.
0: Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice support the show on patreon.com/codestory for just 5 to 10 bucks a month and when you get a chance leave us a review both things help us out tremendously and thanks again for listening